Welcome to this new year of Lectio Divina. And the theme for this year will be uh, men and women of the Old Testament. I thought that I might have some difficulty finding the 10 uh, themes that are needed during one year, but I found that I barely got halfway through the Old Testament. I'd already uh, found 10 examples that might be appropriate uh, for this, um, for the Lectio Divina. And so we're gonna start with the beginning. We'll start with uh, Genesis and uh, with Adam and Eve. That's pretty basic in our life of faith. Um, and we're gonna start going downhill after that because uh, next week, or next month, we'll be looking at Lot. And Lot, not a lot is known about Lot, um, but uh, Lot is not a very uh, a remarkable figure. He's not a very honorable person. And I think when we look at the people in the Old Testament or in the scriptures, we need to find the great heroes, the saints and people like that. We also need to look at people who remind us of our own frailty. And I think Lot is very helpful in that. And then of course, the sacrifice of Isaac, a very fundamental story in the history of salvation and a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. And then we will dip into the Joseph story, the last section of the book of Genesis. So we get all the way up to Christmas and we're still in the book of Genesis. But the story of Joseph and his brothers, how true that is of human life. Sibling rivalry, jealousy, so many different things. Uh, they speak to us of our, our life today. And there are actually several other portions of the Joseph story that might uh, make a very appropriate Lexa Divina, but this is all we'll do this year. The next year we'll begin with Moses, the murderer who became a great instrument of God's grace. Then Naomi and Ruth, whither thou goest, I will go. The great uh, example of fidelity and love, which we find in the Old Testament. Then the call of Samuel, which is at the very heart, of course, of Lectio Divina. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Then again, we'll start getting into more um, negative things, the David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. Well, there we have actually, Uriah is a rather noble example for us there. Then Elijah, and we'll end off with Jonah's mission to Nineveh, sending off the year as we come to the end of this year of Alexa Divina with that great impulse towards uh, doing the will of God to spread God's love even to the people we may not want to encounter. And that is the great thing with Jonah, of course, he runs away from the call of God and God keeps sending him back to do the will of the Lord. And so that's what we'll be doing this year. Uh, and uh, since we've only gotten a short distance through the um, men and women of the Old Testament, I think that might have some for next year as well, but we will see our men and women of the New Testament. This evening, we will begin with the uh, story of the fall it is a great story, obviously, of temptation. It can only, because we can only do a certain number of verses during a time of Lectio Divina, you can't do you know, two chapters, but really it's very intimately linked from, with chapter two, verse four and following, and then chapter three to the end. The creation of the great Garden of Eden, this place of harmony, man and woman together, given the mission to tend the garden, to be stewards, of God's creation, but not masters, only stewards. That's what we all are. We're stewards of creation. The Lord is the master. And so there's always limitation. 
They can have everything in the garden except, there's a limitation, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which are there in the center of the garden. And of course, the, what we see in the, the portion we'll be reading for Lecture Divina this evening is uh, they can't remain limited. They insist on having it all. I want it all. And that, of course, is the downfall of many a human life when we do not recognize with humility our limitations, but seek to become God, not in holiness, as we're called to be like God, but rather in power and in mastery, forgetting we're simply stewards of creation. So the portion this evening will be the second half of that, but really we do need to read, uh, maybe after this evening, just read chapter two and three, because the two of them really do go together. I just don't have, there's not enough time to do both of them in one, Lecture Divina time. In this, uh, in chapter three, we meet Adam and Eve. We see their temptation. We also meet the snake, the serpent, the crafty serpent, uh, more subtle and crafty than all the other animals of the field. And the snake has long been a symbol of power, of immortality, because it leaves its skin behind and keeps on going. It seems to be immortal. It also, we see actually, not too far away from here, you can see on a bookstore, the symbol of what's called the worm Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail, which is a kind of a, a very uh, negative sign, a kind of pagan immortality. It also, of course, is a fearsome creature because some snakes can kill you. So it is a powerful symbol. And it was taken uh, in ancient times, both to be a kind of a god to be worshiped and also a sign of the reality of evil. In the actual portion of scriptures in the book of Genesis, those later understandings are not developed very much. They're not developed really at all. Uh, but the later Christian tradition, actually the later Jewish tradition, the book of Wisdom chapter two, sees the snake as a kind of a symbol of Satan, of the devil, of the tempter in that sense. And that's developed further on in the New Testament uh, and in the Christian tradition. It's probably not originally in the mind of the small a author. Every passage of scripture has a small a author, which is the author, the human, and a big a author that's God. So we, we see those two always working together. Whether the original uh, human writer saw all those later implications, we don't really know. And for that matter, we don't really care because what we do know is that we look to the way in which this fits into the whole tradition in the, the mind of God and in the whole pattern of God's, uh, God's revelation. So it is a thing for us to think we can legitimately reflect upon temptation in this passage. The world, the flesh, and the devil, we later learn, are the three great sources of temptation. We all face it. It's a testing. It makes us strong or it can lead us astray. The world, keeping up with the Joneses, trying to please this world, that's a great temptation. It's always present. The flesh, pride, anger, envy, greed, laziness, lust, gluttony, not just lust, but all of them. The flesh, our human frailty, our human passions can be a source of temptation. And of course, the devil too, sometimes symbolized by a snake or by other human symbols. We use human symbols to represent the divine or to represent the spiritual. Obviously, Satan or angels don't have bodies, they are pure spirits. And of course, the 
visual imagery is not that, uh, it, it changes from culture to culture. That does not mean that the reality behind that, expressed by that, is uh, something that is cultural. The reality of the personal fact, of the personal existence of Satan, is a doctrine of our Catholic faith. But the way in art and things like that uh, this is represented uh, varies from culture to culture, obviously. And sometimes the serpent is used in the book of Genesis, and also later on the dragon in the, the book of the Apocalypse. And that's what you see, if nobody can see my little symbol here, the symbol of the Archdiocese of Toronto. It is the dragon being speared by the sword of Michael, the archangel. My consciousness of the reality of evil in this world has grown over the years. There's also my consciousness of the reality of good, God's grace and presence. They're both there. That's why I've encouraged the praying of the St. Michael prayer in the liturgy, after the liturgy, because it's something very real, this battle against the power of evil, and particularly against the personal reality of Satan, um, who is only a tempter, not divine, only creature, but is one of the sources of temptation. Now, we see the dynamics of temptation in today's reading of in chapter three of Genesis. And so we begin our Lectio Divina. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us, that we may listen attentively to these words of sacred scripture. O oh Lord, take away from our hearts those barriers which prevent us from listening to you, O oh Lord, and to, to other people as well. May there be a pathway to our hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. and You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the gate, at east, at the gate east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The tempter speaks subtly. And most temptations are subtle. Some are crude, but most are subtle. He begins to weave his way into her mind. And he does this by slightly changing, reversing, moving around what the Lord had actually said. Actually, the Lord God had said, you can eat of any of the trees, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he said, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He begins to work upon her mind. I think that's the way in which we can usually resist obvious temptations and uh, pride ourselves on that, which is the beginning of our deeper troubles. 
some of the uh, early fathers of the church, especially the desert fathers of Egypt, we often hear of great holy men and monks of the ancient times who would spend decades resisting kind of obvious temptations and then would be filled with pride. And then that was the first step towards actually falling into sin. So we should ask ourselves, not whether we can be protected against the obvious temptations, but ask the Lord to help us to be protected against the subtle temptations that lead us away from fidelity, maybe by a little twisting of language, maybe by some way of playing with our minds. We always have to worry whenever language is twisted. We see that in our society these days. As for example, when they call killing euthanasia, medical assistance in dying. Sweet words, sweet words, totally out of touch with reality. When language is used as a serpent is using it here to twist and turn, to disconnect from giving a true picture of what's actually there, then we should let the alarm bells clang away, let the lights flash and get out of there. The first victim of war is truth, they say, and the first victim in our society is language. So we need to be attentive to the temptations that come when reality is coated over with the twisting words of the slippery serpent, as we find in this profound chapter of the scriptures. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Let's think of the ways we are beguiled by subtle temptations and ask the Lord to help us to see them and resist them. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Actually, she goes beyond what the Lord said. She's going too far. We should be accurate in what we reflect on in terms of listening to God's word. But she does notice that he is wrong. She begins an effort to resist the coil of temptation. She corrects his first effort at deceit, but it does her no good in the long run. You shall eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it nor shall you die. You shall not eat of that fruit. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of, of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Temptation is resilient. It keeps on coming. The tempter comes, whether it be the world, the flesh or the devil. We may be happy that we've resisted for a while and we should be thankful to God's grace if we do catch the first subtle coil. But he keeps twisting us, twisting. So we need to be constantly alert. Just as it says all that is needed for the triumph of evil is that enough good people do nothing. 
So all that is needed for the triumph of sin in our hearts is if we become complacent and do not be attentive to the constant temptation we face. And so the serpent said to the woman, you shall not, you will not die. And is that not a great desire to be immortal? You will not die. He's also there, he's becoming a little more blunt. He's saying God is a liar. Isn't that interesting? The father of lies says that God is a liar. What is truth? Said jesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer as Francis Bacon says about the cowardly prefect of the passion. You will not die. He tells a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And that's true. They do discover that their eyes are opened. So the tempter uses the truth to tempt, as well as lies to tempt. He'll use anything. We need to be alert to that. Half-truths will tempt more than total falsities. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Good and evil here may mean a moral understanding, like knowing how to distinguish between good and evil, but more likely what it really means is A to Z, top to bottom, good and evil. It tends to, it means basically everything. You will know everything. Just as now you control every tree in the garden, you will know everything. In other words, you will have the power of God. And that is something that allures us, where we should be willing and eager, not for that, but for the love of God, which we see in Christ Jesus our Lord, who did not cling to power, to his equality with God, but emptied himself to death, death on a cross. But they're not looking at that. They want, she wants everything, the whole thing. And that is not a healthy way to live. Let's just reflect within our own hearts, in our own particular lives, whatever they may be, wherever our temptations are, they're all very different. Each one of us is like an individual fingerprint of temptation and of struggle with sin, different from each person, but certain basic themes. What are the times that I am drawn to seek everything? When I'm drawn to away from a humble humility of holiness, of serving God in love and wanting to be dominant, wanting to control. It is the bewitching temptation to control that so often leads us astray, to control life, to control other people. It's like there's a famous story in the Middle Ages of a man who wanted to control life. He went on a journey, he wanted to control all the dangers that might come upon him. So he loaded himself down with pots and pans and armor and swords and everything he could think of. He went over a bridge, he was so heavy, he went down and died in the water below. So we should really lighten up a bit, <laughs> lighten up, and um, not seek to control everything. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Lord, help us to resist that temptation 
to have everything, to have control. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband and he ate. She now no longer needs the tempter. He's led her to the point. Now she takes over herself. Her first desire is good to eat, a lowly base desire. It's good food, I want it. But that's not, that's a bit embarrassing to be driven by such a crass desire. And so she covers it over with a more noble one and beautiful to look at. That's more noble. We do try to rationalize our sins and wonderful for to be desired to make one wise. That's even more noble. Isn't that true? When we're giving into temptation, we don't want to admit the most base reason we're being driven along. We'd rather kind of cover it over, something that's a little more respectable. And so we begin this rationalizing. We don't need the devil to help us do it. We do that our, ourselves. It's so real, so deep within our own human frailty. And so she took its fruit and ate. All this maneuvering and looping of the serpent's coils, and now she took, she ate. And she gave some to her husband and he ate. Now, it does, I always point out, it took a good bit of struggle for uh, the serpent to tempt the woman to finally give in. Adam kind of went like that. Uh, didn't take more than about half a phrase for him to bite the dust, if you might say. But that's so real. The first call of temptation, the twisting of language, the fogging of reality, the inner drive, the covering up, the rationalizing, and then the tipping point. And that's the point at which sin occurs. Not the temptation, it's not sin, obviously. It's that tipping point where the will says, yes, and we go for it. That's where sin occurs, and not before that. And so as we live our life surrounded by temptation, we should not become discouraged. Remember, we are freed from our temptations 10 minutes after we're dead, maybe 15 minutes. So we should not, you know, let's not be discouraged by them. We're gonna struggle with them, and they make us stronger, more humble, especially the more humiliating the temptations are, the more humble they make us if we approach them the right way. We just have to not get to that tipping point where we take and eat and let the will consent to it. So the serpent had said that their eyes would be opened. And they sure were. Their eyes were open. And then the eyes of both were opened. Did they see divine power before them? No. And they knew that they were naked vulnerable, naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, clothes. Boom. I, I 
don't have it memorized, but I wish I did. I used to have a bit of it memorized, but there's a wonderful sonnet by Shakespeare. Uh, the expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action. And it takes us through this whole pattern. And the, finally that boom, that disappointment, that callowness, that, that ashes that come when sin is finally achieved and then there's nothing there. I'd recommend it. It's similar, it's next to Genesis 3, it's maybe one of the best uh, expressions of the dynamics of temptation and sin. And so it comes to that. They simply sew fig leaves together. And that's why, of course, the people want, I just read a commentary a while ago, some time ago, it said, we often think of the apple, you know, the eating the apple, and whatever. Well, probably not. It doesn't say there's an apple, but somebody said it was probably a fig, the fruit of the, I mean, this, in the story, because their, their figs are there, they any fig leaves. They always say the problem is not the apple in the tree, it's the pear on the ground, which is a lot of truth in that. So there they are, they've succeeded, they think, and look what's happened. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They had never felt the need to hide before. Now they're trying to hide from God. Isn't that something? Now, of course, God is presented here walking in the garden, it's that image of the Lord, but they're afraid of him. That's a sign. If we feel we need to hide from God, let's hurry up and get to confession. Once we have that within our hearts, it's a, a warning sign that we need to come clean. It's a kind of like guilt, which, oh, it's guilt. This is guilt. And I feel obliged as a Catholic bishop to say guilt is good. Not too much of it. Uh, too much of it is scrupulosity when I feel guilty about everything. That's a psychological struggle. That's not a good thing. That's an affliction. But guilt is like that annoying bell and the smoke detector that wakes us up when the house is burning down. What an irritating bell disturbing my sleep. But it saves my life. Now you don't want it ringing all day long because there's something wrong with it. No, that's, that's scrupulosity. But you sure want it to go off, don't you? When the house is burning down. That's that sense of guilt, which should warn us. And uh, it, it can make, it's very healthy. And so the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Obviously God knows where he is, but he, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Now, you can't get away from it. Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree? It's just like a thing a bit later when we're looking at Moses, you know, when he kills the Egyptian and he looks around, no one there. He kills the Egyptian and buries the body. And then the next day, someone, one of the Hebrews says, are you gonna kill, kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? Sure. There's no getting away. 
Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Isn't it simpler just to live clearly, cleanly, honorably? And so often we're always like the twisting coils of the serpent. We're always getting ourselves so caught up in so much that is not worthwhile. I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, oh, here we are. This is something typical. The man and the woman, this is so real. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me fruit, the fruit of the tree I ate. Well, technically that's true, but really? Blaming other people, escaping. You know, my, that's not my hand in the cookie jar. You know? hmm. We always want to blame. First, we, we rationalize our way around before we sin. And then we turn, you know, this is like, what is it they say, you know, when, you, when people are caught lying in public and all that? Uh, errors have been made. You know, we always put something into the, into the passive voice. Errors have been made. And mis, misspeaking has occurred. No one's going to say, I lied. <laughs> Errors have been made, and misspeaking has occurred. Who did it? It's like, it's like that hilarious scene in, later on in the, in the book of Exodus when um, Aaron makes a golden calf, and he, when he's called out by Moses, he says, I, I threw the gold in the fire, and out came a calf. <laughs> oh, dear. So the man blames his wife, and then, of course, she blames the snake. And then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. Oh, it's so real, so frail. We do it all the time, don't we? Maybe we should just say, I did it. That's why there's a great line at the beginning of Mass. Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. I did it, I did it, I did it. Or the great, fantastic, better than it was a dark and stormy night, the great opening line of confession. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Not like, bless me, Father, for my neighbor has sinned, and I'll tell you all about it. Or bless me, Father, for errors have been made. <laughs> Words have come out the wrong way. Things have gone astray. No, I have sinned. And until we can come to that, preferably before God, first of all, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's say that all the time, so that if you wake up in the middle of the night, as I you know I always do, have it coming in your head all the time. Bless, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so then the Lord God gives the various punishments. So because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That of course is a very famous line and we see very often a foreshadowing here, again in the mind of the great author, 
if not in the mind of the small a author, of the coming of the Lord and the great victory over evil and over Satan, which is picked up again in the book of the apocalypse, where we see the great battle in heaven. So these are kind of ramifications that go off into the future, but are not found here yet. But this is the beginning. This is the stone dropped into the pond, which has the later ramifications. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. There is the human condition laid out before us. Relationships, struggle, and where before they had been gentle stewards of the beautiful garden in harmony with the whole of it. Now it's grinding labor, it's toil. And in the course of that will come purification. Not by any longer the way of innocence, but the way of repentance. There are two ways to heaven, the way of innocence and the way of repentance. And we all tread along the way of repentance. But it's a purifying reality, as temptation itself is purifying, because it frees us of the worst of the sins, which is pride. If we're humbly struggling, Lord, protect me, help me from the temptations that surround me, that are in the world, the flesh, and the devil, that are all over. Help me, Lord, each day to live life rightly. Forgive me my sins. Help me to struggle against the temptations which make me more humble if I struggle against them and do not yield to them. We need to be honorable. Honorable. So often we see how dishonor, which is sort of this caving in, this complacency, not even struggling, this complacency, this indulging, this snuggling into iniquity. We all are faced with temptation. It is honorable to say, Lord, help me in the midst of my temptations. And remember what um, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, where he said, we don't know what it was, whether it's a temptation or something. It was something that made him, you know, he's, here is St. Paul, super brilliant, born leader, you know, just everything. And yet there was something needed to puncture him, he even had mystical visions of the seventh heaven. Something he needed, God let him have, that some, some little thing in the flesh, whatever it was. And he said, I, he asked three times, Lord, take it away from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. 
for it is in weakness that power reaches perfection, that the strength of Christ may rest upon you. And so that's our struggle, our daily struggle. And yet in it we are purified, and in that path we come to holiness. And the path is marked by the sacrament of reconciliation, by our daily prayers of repentance, and by our trust. Not a fierce struggle against temptation, or a depressing, discouraging one, but simply a humble one. Help me, Lord. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, using that divine plural, um, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. That's why I must say on Ash Wednesday, there are more, there are other prayers one uses when putting the ashes on. I always use, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. I mean, that's like keeping a little skull in your desk. That's what St. John Fisher did. I think he had a real skull, actually. Uh, when, the, when Henry VIII's thugs uh, ransacked John Fisher, the great bishop in his time, the only bishop who said no to the king, um, when he ransacked, they ransacked his place, he didn't have very much. They were looking for piles of gold, and all they found was a desk with a skull on it and a crucifix. That, remember your dust. Sometimes people get a little stone or plastic or porcelain skull, <laughs> put it there just as a reminder. It keeps us grounded. Like those trucks with gasoline and all, they have those little chains that kind of keep them from blowing up. Uh, that's not a bad idea. The crucifix works as well, you don't. The crucifix, like a real crucifix. Therefore the Lord God sent them forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and all the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the shortcut is no longer there. This is sort of like Dante in the, the most beautiful poem ever written based on the philosophy and theology of the greatest of all theologians, Thomas Aquinas, Dante Alighieri. He wants to make it up to the hill of the delights, first of all. No, not at all. You gotta go down through hell. You gotta get to purification before you finally come to the glory of the Lord. But it's gonna be a lot of humility before you make it. No quick path up the mountain of delight. And so we pray that we may be transformed by these words, that they may shine a bright light into our hearts. We need not fear what we find there, for we will find our sinfulness, but we will find also the mercy of God. We will not find the mercy of God unless we recognize our sinfulness. For, for what could he forgive us if we are without sin, which we are not? We need to know the twisting of the serpent and recognize that. 
We need to know the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three. And in that purification, which God allows, our pride is battered down and we are drawn slowly to holiness, to that profound experience of God, which is our goal, our mission, our journey in life. And that's what he speaks of, the Lord God, through the human author, in these divine words. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.